a busy time during uh, lockdown. Um, our son-in-law and daughter with their um, nearly two-year-old son, Jimmy, turned up, moved in, set up camp at our house. And, um, and that was fantastic. We, uh, we had a really great time together. And uh, our daughter, Melissa, had another baby while she was there. So Toby was born. Um, I've forgotten his birthday, but grandfathers have grandmothers to help them with that sort of thing. Um, but uh, fantastic result there. Our, our other daughter, not wanting to miss out on the action, um, decided that she'd get married. And so Brittany got married two weeks ago. So uh, she married Nick. And uh, so that's fantastic. And um, yeah, so that's a huge story in itself because of uh, some of you will be aware of of Brittany's uh, story of having lost a husband a number of years ago uh, to leukemia. So we've had a fantastic celebration. Uh, when it comes to babies, <laughs> when it comes to weddings, so I've actually got dishpan hands because the only thing I was useful for the whole time was to, to wash dishes. <laughs> Our dishwasher broke down the first day of the lockdown. <laughs> so um, yay, you say. Yeah, it's a good idea. Probably was. Gave me something to do. Kept me out of trouble. Anyway, um, many of you will have your own lockdown stories. But um, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to pick up on a story that we were completing, we were finishing uh, as we went into lockdown. We were looking at the book of Amos, the prophet Amos. And, uh, and over that period of time, as we looked at Amos, we went through those chapters and we were discovering what it was that God had put on the prophet's heart to help him speak to the nation to help him become a voice from God to correct the way in which the nation of Israel was living. Uh, but during the lockdown period, we did a series called The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. And what we did there is that we looked at those parables that were very, very simple and yet very, very profound. Uh, they brought together the simplicity of what it means to be a follower of Jesus at the same time, how that simplicity has a huge impact upon the direction and our, uh, direction of our life and the way in which we live our life. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to pull together the tail end of Amos and the tail end of the series called The Kingdom of Heaven and present to us what I think is a, a really good conclusion for us in regards to uh, where we are now as a nation and what the scriptures have been saying to us over the six-month period. Well, the first thing that I want to mention is um, that we live as Christians beyond luck, beyond luck, beyond fate, okay? Our world is not set in motion at a level of fatalism. And that in itself gives us a future and a hope because it says that things are not predetermined. They're not written in the skies. They're not written in the stars. It's not based upon a reincarnation theory that says you therefore reap what you have sown in a previous life. Um, I heard a new word the other day. It's called reincarnation. It's when you die and come back a hillbilly. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay. The humor's got to improve, doesn't it? Okay. But... Um, we don't live as Christians in a world where luck determines or fate determines our outcomes. And this is one of the most, um, it seems like a, a profoundly simple statement to make, but it separates us out from so many other faiths. And that's why Christians have a hope. That's why Christians have a hope beyond just the hope for the eternal, where I, where I die, I go to be 
go to be with the Lord in heaven, but they have a hope here every day that this world is not a predetermined mechanism that is just wound up and we just outwork the process beyond luck. So let me take probably the most, uh, uh, well, I think it's probably the most powerful verse out of the, the book of Amos and remind us of that. It says, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Do you like that? Martin Luther King, of course, preached sermons off the back of this. The civil rights movement, which seems to be re-energized at the moment in the States, got a lot of momentum out of these verses. And so we find ourselves looking at these through the eyes of being a New Zealander, but looking at them from the eyes of being church. You see, the thing about this whole idea of let justice roll is that there's momentum there, isn't there? There's continuity. This isn't just a one-off event where righteousness happened in a moment and somebody did something right, but it rolls like a river. And the thing about a river is that when you stand at the river's edge, you look up the river and you're going, how far does that go? How far has that come from, I should say? And then you look down the other way and you say, how far is that river going to go? How far is that river going to roll? You see, a river and righteousness, a river and justice are great illustrations because they tell us that there's momentum there. They tell us that this is an ongoing part of world history, that God is very, very keen to see righteousness and justice as an ongoing part of our world. God didn't say, let justice roll like a reservoir. Let righteousness be like a never-failing lake. You see, the whole thing about Righteousness and justice is that it's supposed to have a life. It's supposed to move through the generations. And as we know, as we look back through history, there have been times when this river of righteousness, this river of justice has dammed up. It's dammed up. And, and the trickle has only just come through rather than a river. And then, of course, history tells us and shows us that there's a dam burst. The civil rights movement of the 60s in the States was like that. A dam burst after the river had been dammed up. And God was in the midst of that, that release of justice, that release of righteousness. And I use that as an example, but we can go back through history and we can find these dam bursts in history where the power, the authority, and, uh, and oppression was bound up in institutions and organizations, and even the church at some points during the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. And so God is very, very keen to ensure that this river flows all the way through. And um, it defies, in every sense, it defies logic, because the nature of the human heart is that it wants to absorb, take hold of, and control their own outcomes. And that usually means controlling other people. And the more authority we're given, the more resources we're given, the easier it is to, for us to feel that we are entitled to control other people. This is not the way God wants. And this is why God used Amos to speak to the nation of Israel, saying, listen, you guys are doing really, really well. You've got this great burgeoning middle class. The wealth is growing, but don't you turn that into a, the privilege of the elite. And then he goes on after this verse that we've got up here, and he talks about other cities and other nations that have experienced an enormous amount of blessing, but literally within a week, they were taken out by neighboring nations. And so he's saying, you are in a privileged position and you need to watch over this and guard it with responsibility. 
So when it comes back to looking at our world, we've got to tell ourselves repeatedly that luck should not determine our destiny. Now, when I say luck, I use that word in, the, in, the, in a worldly sense because luck is the, often the way people interpret what is going on around us. It's just really bad luck that you happen to be in the tourism industry. It's really bad luck that you're in the hospitality industry. Really bad luck that you're in the accommodation industry when COVID-19 hit the nation. Well, God's saying if we're to be a civilized society, if we're to be a God-fearing people, then luck has got nothing to do with that. Your ultimate destiny, whether you can put food on the table, should not be determined around whether this one disease or this one problem affected you. Uh, In the same fashion, we can have other bad luck stories. Uh, New Zealand farmers live in fear of foot and mouth disease. MPI, our our border security, they work tirelessly to stop foot and mouth disease getting a hold within New Zealand. It'll wipe out all of our our, um, dairy industry. Wipe it out. There's only one way to eradicate it, that's to destroy every animal that's been in contact with it. PSA, those of you who aren't aware of the kiwi fruit industry, you roll the clock back nine years, PSA was just a fear that came upon this community because we didn't know to what degree that disease was going to affect the kiwi fruit vines. Vines started dying randomly, and then they found that they could treat them to some degree. But all of this appears to be bad luck, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we as a church need to be prepared to step in and to ensure that dumb luck, as people might perceive it, doesn't ruin people's lives. That's the the call of God whenever a tragedy comes, is the call of God is to ensure that that river of justice, that river of love, that river of life rolls and it doesn't get caught uh, in a dam and just accumulate in one place where people get wealthy at the expense often of others. And this, my friends, is where the church should be thriving. This is where the church should be thriving. Because our response to a calamity or to a problem, to some sort of disaster, should be a response that comes out of our our love for Christ and his command to us to do unto others as we'd have them do unto us. Yeah? And so therefore, our response should be an ongoing river of love, an ongoing river of response. And we say, hey, 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 hold on. That's not our responsibility. I pay my taxes. We've got a government who should do that. And yes, you're right. The government does do this, and the government has stepped in. But have you noticed that there's a limit to how long they're going to pay that subsidy? There is a limit. You see, there's a limit to economic welfare. There's a limit to uh, what a government will do politically, because it it is a political organization, and it has limits. But the church and its people don't have limits. And a response to any problem will ultimately be the church's response because at the end of the day, every part of society will look to those who are the last to give up. And if you go now to um, uh, WINS or whatever they're called now, WINS, Ministry of Social Development, people who help in in that fashion, and they say to you, listen, we can't give you any more money. Okay, you've exhausted our supply. Their final word to you will be, go to the church. That's not official policy, 
but that's the last thing on the lips of somebody who works for the government agencies because once they are exhausted, they know that the church is not exhausted. The church still has a supply given by God of love, of mercy, of kindness, of justice that rolls through the church into society. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it was only in the 1930s in New Zealand, get this right, this is only 80 years ago, no, 90 years ago now, uh, that um, Michael Joseph Savage, the Labour Prime Minister at the time, stepped in and said, we will be the first in the world to support people in the forms that they do now, with unemployment benefits, with sickness benefits, with widow's benefits, with uh, pensions were upped. And uh, this became a time and season and place in history when the state came in and took over the responsibility that had traditionally been the churches. But it's unsustainable. It's unsustainable. Because ultimately it becomes politically driven. And we the church, I say this today, because we the church will find our place again over this time of struggle. We don't wish struggle, we don't wish despair, we don't wish economic ruin upon anybody. But we need to be mindful of what it is that God is positioning us to do and to be in this season and remind ourselves of our responsibility before God to love our neighbours. There's uh, something happening at the moment which uh, we're all aware of, and uh, I've called it a green drought. People will know what a green drought is. At the moment, uh, our lawn is a little bit better, but um, over the lockdown period, uh, my wife, who's a bit of a gardener, um, she decided that she wanted to move some trees from here to here. And when you're a gardener and you've got a husband, you've got a good thing. <laughs> okay? So um, it's all you want as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a woman who loves gardening. All you need is someone who can dig holes for you. So that was me. And what we found is that as we took away that grass, just that couple of centimetres of grass, literally underneath that green grass, the ground was dry, it was like powder. I just could not believe it. And so our society right now is in the middle of a green drought. We're all wearing the same clothes, they are not falling to pieces. We're all driving the same cars, they're still on the road, there's still petrol in most people's tanks. Okay, so we're in the middle of a sort of suspended animation before reality hits. The reality is that underneath it's dry. And so therefore our nation is going to be affected by this. Like my lawn would have been if the grains hadn't have come, ultimately the green grass would have died. And so I want to say this, that the, the solution for social injustice is not found in new laws, but in renewed hearts. Okay? And I, I just want to say to us, the church, we need to step up and reclaim our place. In the 1930s, we celebrated as a church the fact that the state took on a large level of this responsibility to look after the poor. But being political and motivated by economic, uh, in economic ways, um, they were only ever going to last a certain distance or until they met a certain crisis. And I think we're on the tipping point of that now. So let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. I know for Michaela and I, when the, uh, in the first week or so when this, this COVID virus hit and we're all in lockdown, we were like, well, what do we do now? What do we do now to help? We can't even walk outside of our, our, our property, you know? You, you're stuck there, apart from doing a little bit of exercise. And so we thought, well, we'd like to help people. 
We want to help people who couldn't help themselves, but we don't even know the people who can't help themselves because often in a green drought, people are too busy mowing the grass, keeping up appearances, yeah? To actually let anybody else know that underneath this is really dry and it's getting tougher and tougher. And so I said, Mikhail, I got an idea as we agreed upon this. I went down the bank and I took a couple of thousand dollars out and I posted $50 notes off to people. And uh, I said, if you need it, keep it. Because I didn't know whether the green grass was dry underneath or wet underneath. If you need it, keep it. If you don't need it, send it to somebody. And so that was, it was really fun. We got some, some good stories back of people who said, hey, not only did we send it on, but we thought, that's a great idea, and they added more to it, and they gave it to somebody they knew who needed it. Okay, so that's just a very, very simple response. But again, bringing together the two ends of these series, the book of Amos and the understanding of the kingdom of heaven, let's have a look at what will be the final parable in this series. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like, and we've started all these stories with that, haven't we? The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you were pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Okay? Interesting little story, isn't it? You go, well, what's this all about? What is he talking about weeds and wheat for? What's that got to do with anything apart from farming? Well, it's a picture of the church. It is a picture of the church if we want it to be a picture of the church. So here's a picture of a field with wheat and weeds in it, okay? Wheat and weeds. And you can see what was going on. The servants were saying, hey, listen, we can see the weeds in there. If we go and pull up the weeds, we'll get the wheat back and it'll look beautiful and we'll harvest it without any trouble. But of course the master knows that if you pull up the wheat, the weeds, you're going to pull up the wheat as well and things all die, it gets real messy. So what he says is, let the weeds and the wheat grow together. Okay? And there's a sense in which what God is saying, or Jesus is saying here is about the kingdom of God in a way that the weeds and the wheat grow together until such a time as the harvest. Now, The thing about human nature, again, is that we like everything to be beautiful and ordered. In our mind, the ideal church looks like this. Perfect wheat, no weeds, all nicely lined up, okay? All great little soldiers for Jesus, all standing in uniform, smiling proudly, marching off to heaven, no one getting in the way, no no problem, because no problems, nobody's got any problems, yeah? And uh, this is the way it is. Parents dream of this for their children. They go, oh God, in the morning, will the children just get up, put their clothes on, make their own breakfast, make their own beds, pack their own lunches, and toddle off to school and come back smiling? <laughs> it is a dream. It is a myth. 
It is mission impossible. It will never, ever happen. But somehow, when we look at the church and we look at what the church could be because we have this high value of what what sinless perfection looks like, we associate that with the church. The problem is the church is the church will always be this, and the parable was designed to tell us that this is what we should expect. So if we are going to allow or want or desire or pray for a river of righteousness and justice to flow through our community, it will flow right through the middle of our auditorium. It'll flow right through every program we've got. It'll flow through everything we do from Monday to Sunday, and it'll look like a a field full of weeds and wheat. And we have to be used to that. Because the tension we face is that this is what we are drawn to. I can remember when I was only probably a Christian for about two years, and I was sitting in a church with Michaela, and um, a couple of young people turned up with, with sort of tats and real rough clothes, you know, torn jeans. You look like Monica Carey, really. And, and, um, and they sat in front of us. Sat in front of us. Her husband's there. Could you buy some? Oh, no, I won't tell you. Um, They sat in front of us, and we overheard these two ladies, the elderly ladies. The one turned to the other and said, have you seen them? We'll pray them out of the church. We don't want them here. You know? And uh, they didn't get any amens from us. But the thing is that they had a picture we, we, they were seeing a church like this full of weeds and wheat, but in their mind they wanted this perfection. Yeah? Folks, if we are to engage with a broken world, we expect the broken to be broken. If we are going to engage with people who have, as we perceive it from Scripture, sin in their lives, they will be sinful. Yeah? Yeah, it's just the way it's going to be. They're not perfect. And if we put on this, this image all the time of being perfect all the time, then the imperfect will not want to mix with the perfect because they will smell our hypocrisy before they even get in the door. Did you hear me say that? They will smell our hypocrisy before we even, they even get in the door. Why? Because none of us are perfect. All of us have got weeds growing somewhere. You know, I was going for a walk the other day and I put my um, little iPhone on my earbuds in. And the earbuds keep popping out. And I realized I got weeds growing in my ears. So, <laughs> so, so I had to get rid of those. See what I mean? Weeds growing everywhere. It's one of the blessings of age. Was that too much detail? <laughs> Look, I've been ruined. I remember a long time ago listening to Jim Hearn speak, all right? And Jim told this story. He says, where, does, um, where do dead flies go? And they go up old men's noses because you can see the, see the legs. <laughs> see, so I've been formed and shaped by my elders. That's why my humor is poor. And I can blame Jim because he's with the Lord now. So, yeah. Anyway. Then he told another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants. It becomes a tree. So the birds come and perch in its branches. 
this is a very, very simple story, isn't it? Because that's it. That's the whole thing. The parable is that, okay? Um, but you'll notice that there's a level of intentionality here. It says that the farmer took a seed and planted it intentionally, probably in that field full of wheats and weed. I'm just guessing here. Didn't say that, but you can see how he's got a field. Didn't say there was much growing in it, but he took that mustard seed and he planted it, and then it grew. And it grew larger, became a statement within the field, became something that was obvious. And what happened? Something absolutely profound. We all went, oh, when I said that birds landed in the tree. And you finish, you imagine Jesus saying that and you would have been going, and? No, that's it, Jesus said. That's the end of the story. Go to bed. <laughs> you see, in the profoundness <clears throat> of that story, you're left with more questions than answers. The questions are, how big did the tree get? What were the birds like? Were they all one colour? Were they all one gender? Were they all one nationality? No. What we're told is that the birds of the air. And so when we look at the birds of the air, we see that there's a multitude of different colours and varieties of birds, and they all come and they land in the tree. And that's it. That's what Jesus expects the church to be. This variety, this multitude of experience, of colour, of education, of wealth, of nationality, all of this comes together to be the church. And so when I think of Jesus' parable of the weeds and the wheat, he might have actually been quite light in that description. You know, because weeds, you take, them as, uh, you take that picture as being one weed, one sort of weed. We all know there is lots of different sorts of weeds in the wheat, just like there are lots of different sorts of birds. And we, the church, are the tree. We, the church, are the tree. And when we grow, we don't grow and say, look at how big we've become. And then we pull our shotguns out and blast the birds off the trees. Yeah? That is not what we're told to do. We're told to respect the fact that they come and they land and they're part take part in something that they didn't even participate in growing. You see, every generation lands on the tree that has been planted by a previous generation. Yeah? yeah. Pretty much since the, the birth of Christendom. Everybody's built on the shoulders of each other. Everything we learn, other people have learned with us and for us. Everything about buildings and land that we have now are the trees that have grown before. Every story about Christ that comes into some, about Christ coming into somebody's life is a branch of that tree that is now being sat upon and used by somebody who's taken advantage of what it is that people have done before them have done before they got there. That, my friends, is the church. And this is the era and the age that we live in. Don't don't take your understanding of the church from the cynical, secular media. We know who we are. 
We know what we're about. We know what drives us. We understand scripture. We understand the work and the word of the spirit. And we understand what we're called to. We're called to be the light. We're called to be salt. And we're called to allow a river of righteousness and justice to flow through us and out of our doors to touch the people whom we are going to spend the rest of our lives being Christ to. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Friends, we're at a a new season in the life of the church. And, And it's something that we just need to expand our understanding, expand our imagination on, on what it is that God is calling us to be. You don't know what this is going to mean for us. I don't necessarily know either. But all I know is that as we read scripture, we can create a soil that will allow things, good things to grow. And the birds of the air are going to land. And waters of righteousness and justice are going to flow through us. And there's going to be wheat and there's going to be weeds. And we're going to be able to handle that. Because we're not scared of what people are like when they don't look like us. And we're going to embrace them. We're going to care for them. We're going to love them. We're going to ensure that they know deep down that their destiny did not depend upon their bad luck or they're being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Can we be that church? Can we do that? Can we take scripture seriously? And can we reach out and just give the the little that we have and share it with others? Because that's what justice looks like. That's what righteousness looks like. It's when we do what we can do, and that is unstoppable because it's not wrapped up in a corporation or an organization. It's not driven by politics. It's only driven by the capacity of the human heart. Can we do that? Let's do that. Let's stand for prayer. God, in these times, we're so grateful for your word because we are inundated with media. Media, people who think they are prophets, who tell us what it's going to be, what it's not going to be, how it's going to be, and uh, what we can expect about the future. What we know, Lord, is that these things are unpredictable. But because of your word and because of Jesus' example to us, we can see what prevails even in the most challenging of times. We can see that justice and righteousness can flow even in the most difficult of times. And I want to pray, Lord, for people here who are deeply affected by this economic condition that we're in post-COVID. Lord, this, uh, this challenge that they face, I, I just want to pray, God, that you give them grace, wisdom, that you give them uh, the ability to be able to source uh, inspiration and help wherever they need it, the support they need, a shoulder to lean on, and uh, even as necessary, the resources to get by week by week. But for us, Lord, as a church, I just want to pray, God, that you would reimagine our collective imagination, that when the opportunity arises, that we do the little to ensure that you get the glory, that you get to be seen as the God who makes the difference in somebody's life. And so, God, for all of us, create in us a radar system that allows us to see people in need, that we can see below the green grass and see the dryness that's there the economic dryness, the spiritual dryness, the emotional dryness, the relational dryness. All of these things, Lord, are just 
um, destroying or about to destroy many people's lives. And so, God, we just want to be able to be there for you. And we know that you're already working in the community. You're ahead of us. That's who you are. And we just want to cooperate with what you're doing. Lord, we thank you that to be salt and to be light uh, is, is not an onerous burden because you said to us that the yoke is easy. But Lord, we need to be open to it, awake to it, aware of it, and mindful that just one little thing can make all the difference to somebody's life. So let this river flow, Lord. Let this river flow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.